0: Welcome to the Health Design podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Giwa.
1: My guest on the podcast today, Alistair Santos, is the author of the book Head First. In this conversation, he talks about the inspiration for that book and his views on supporting patients for whom it is not possible to make a simple diagnosis. Here is Alistair Santos. Alistair, I'm thrilled to spend time with you because of your interest in the mind body connection and your thesis that there are so many people who cannot be diagnosed and that we are much more than the sum of our parts, our organic bits, if you like. But before we do that and we delve into some of your thinking and your book, Head First, published in July last year. I want to ask you about yourself. Who is Alistair Santos, and how did he become a doctor?
2: A very good question to begin with. I became a doctor for all the worst reasons, which is essentially what my parents made me. The sort of a second generation Jewish immigrant family living in suburban Manchester. I can see you nodding in some kind of recognition. Um, and... So it, it was sort of assumed that if you had the ability to do it, then then you would. I mean, it's it's interesting. I I look back when I was writing the book, and you can see forerunners of why I became a psychiatrist. I used to, my sister used to get these teenage magazines for teenage girls, and they came with a problem page, uh, as well as sort of photo love stories and the whole thing. So on these problem pages, I would grab this magazine before anyone noticed it had arrived. And I would cover up the answers to the problems that these teenage girls had written in and write my own answer and sort of kept this little database of life's teen problems of mean teachers and the first kiss and all of those sorts of things. And looking back now, I was thinking it's obvious that I was going to be a psychiatrist. After that, I went to Cambridge and studied medicine so and for a time I thought I'll just be a regular doctor and I think over over time I noticed probably what you started the interview with which is the amount of patients who seem to have problems that didn't fall into a crisp diagnostic category and you would kind of kick the can down the road a little bit you'd do a few more investigations and hopefully you'd have moved on by then. And it was just someone else's clinical problem to try and resolve. But I began to think that we were practicing medicine in a way that wasn't really benefiting patients that we were seeing. So I ended up retraining, obviously within medicine and going back a few years to do psychiatry. And I think that was probably the best decision I made. So that in a very brief outline is how I ended up where I am.
1: I'm not gonna let you away with it quite so easily. I'm gonna go <laughs> back, I'm gonna go back and really drill down to this because as the Associate Dean of a Med School, I have responsibility for let's say encouraging my students to think deeply about their patients and particularly about the diagnostic odyssey. And the temptation is to say well, look, you you simply aren't doing enough tests, you simply haven't picked the right test, you haven't heard the bell in the history that tolls the diagnosis for this patient. If only you'd done your serum rhubarb test, you might have picked up the diagnosis. And of course, lawyers looking back, when you've made a horrible mistake, will say, well, the serum rhubarb test would have given you the diagnosis, doctor. How do you square that in your mind? Is it that we say this to ourselves because we're not good diagnosticians or is it that the diagnosis is elusive sometimes?
2: I think it's a really good question and and honestly I think there's an hour's conversation just in that although I won't uh, I won't speak for an hour but I I think the starting point of this conversation is the culture of medicine that we live in and and there was something in your question that suggested a risk adversity And I think it taps into this notion that for each symptom that people experience, if you only were to look hard enough, you would find a treatable organic cause that would allow the patient to breathe a heavy sigh of relief and move on with their life. Now, I think there's two sort of broad arms to this. The first is our culture. And our culture is that if you have a symptom, then there must be a disease process to account for it. I suppose you would say a little bit like an infectious disease, which was the first real success that medicine had. You have a pathogen, it causes a disease which leads to an illness, and you can cure it with an antibiotic. And ever since then, we tried to make everything look like that. But in the real world, people present with symptoms, and symptoms are messy and complicated and diffuse, And very commonly, they don't reflect any underlying organic disease. We can get into the statistics of that in a minute, but I would just say, when a patient presents to you with symptoms and you don't find a disease, well, where does that leave the patient? They're saying, well, I feel ill, but you've now sort of invalidated my illness by not finding anything to account for it. So what am I gonna go back and tell my family? How do I justify why I've not been to work for the past two months? And so I think, first of all, there is a cultural problem in that we feel that we need to validate someone's suffering through a disease label. And I think that's that is a problem. And I think, secondly, there is a sort of risk adversity that, as you sort of hinted at, that comes with this medical legal part of it, which is, well, looking back, if you over investigate patients as a doctor. Well, you know, it's a bit cautious and maybe a bit fastidious, but it doesn't make you a bad doctor. Even, by the way, if you're uncovering lots of other ancillary problems now that you didn't expect to find, which just create a headache. But no one criticizes you too badly for that. But if you miss a diagnosis, I think people are unforgiving. And the lawyer lawyer in your fictional scenario wouldn't forgive you for it. So I think there are a lot of cultural reasons why we do what we do and maybe we'll come on later to you know to to the difficulties with that I think there's a second issue though which is how many patients present with physical symptoms for which there is no underlying organic cause I often ask the medical students that question I don't know if you do but the answers are always surprising there's one large American study that, uh, in primary care, so what we would call general practice in England, I don't know if it's the same term in Australia. And they looked at people presenting with common symptoms: dizziness, headache, back pain, chest pain, that sort of thing. and they found that only 16 percent of people with those symptoms had an organic illness to explain their presentation. Now, it's not to say for your listeners you shouldn't go to the doctor if you're feeling ill, of course you should. But the question is, how much of the time will this turn out to be an organic presentation? If you make it past your doctor and you get to secondary care in a general hospital and you go to the outpatient department, it's roughly about 50 percent of the time they will find an underlying organic physical cause to account for why you were there in the first place. So that's, um, that's quite a figure. I mean, in some clinics, for example, in gynecology, they found that it was 66% of patients did not have an organic diagnosis. Now, you, you work in a general hospital and you know that each specialty they'll have chronic pelvic pain or unexplained chest pain or PPPS, the dizziness, which is hard to explain. There's lots of these sort of symptoms in every specialty. But whether the emphasis is given in medical schools to those things, I think it isn't.
1: You're right, and I think we should preface this conversation by saying we're not talking about the barn door vertigo that you and I would recognise immediately as a labyrinthine disorder that can be diagnosed as an organic illness. We are talking about symptoms that are not quite that clear cut. We're talking about people... Who feel vaguely unwell, who, whose symptoms don't fit any anatomical or physiological pattern? Am I right in saying that?
2: I think that's right. So, so, sometimes they appear that they ought to fit an anatomical pattern, but you're right. I mean, what I didn't say in the preface introduction is that I, as a psychiatrist, worked in a, in, in a general hospital, a teaching hospital, for twenty years. So, I'm. I don't practice psychiatry in the community. I practice within general hospital and people come there expecting to have investigations and expecting for the most part something to be found to to account for it. sometimes they're a bit diffuse and they don't easily fit in and sometimes it's not clear whether they're caused by one thing or another but sometimes you just don't find the underlying cause which is not to say it's automatically psychiatric by the way it's far more complicated than that and i think That's one message I do want to sort of get across is that just because you don't find an organic physical cause for someone's symptoms doesn't mean they're mad or making operates on their head or anything like that. It's far more subtle, far more nuanced about the interaction between health and illness and why people experience the symptoms they do.
0: You're listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa.
1: I never say to a patient that you are feeling like this because you're stressed, because what they hear is you're feeling like this because you are not coping with your life, which is really very unfair. You've got to admit to the patient that you don't necessarily know the diagnosis, but that you will work with them whatever it is and work with them through it. That brings you on to the treatment in a situation where you are not certain of the diagnosis. What's your approach in that scenario?
2: Well, I think that the, the sort of taking a step back, what, what I often observe in clinics is that a patient will present with symptoms and the doctor will take a history and investigate those symptoms. And sometimes in the back of their mind, the doctor is thinking, I'm, I'm not sure what this is and they'll the the, the, the the investigations come back, and they're broadly normal, and the doctors will send for more tests and reinvestigate. And six months down the road, we'll say, look, we can't find anything. And do you think you'd like to speak to Dr. Santhouse who's a psychiatrist friend? And the, and the patient is understandably pretty put out by that. You know, they're thinking, well, they're being fobbed off now that they can't find anything wrong. They thought the was, and now just because they can't find it, they're assuming that somehow – it's in my head and i in other words i think right at the very beginning most helpful thing doctors can do if they think that there is a psychological component is to say look i'm going to investigate your symptoms but if these tests come back normal or negative the next conversation we need to have is about whether there's other factors psychological and social factors that may be contributory to your symptoms and i think getting into that conversation is much more fruitful if you can do it earlier. And that comes back to where we started, which is about our culture and whether people are able to hear that in a consultation, whether they, and I think our culture at the moment is, well, certainly hitherto, it's been difficult. I think it's changing a bit, but I still think that it doesn't always land well.
1: People expect you to come up with a label that will allow them to just make sense of something that doesn't necessarily make sense to them, never mind how you are hearing their history and and what you're finding when you examine them. The other thing, of course, is that one in seven patients has a rare condition, and by definition, that's going to be a difficult diagnosis. So whereas they say, you know, every time you hear hoofbeats, you should think of horses, not zebras, very occasionally you are dealing with a zebra. And that's going to take a little bit of unpacking, possibly beyond your skill set. So, again, not wanting to harp on about the possibility of an organic diagnosis, how do you approach your patients who may be th- saying to you, could this be a zebra?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. And I think that does sometimes sort of get into the back of your mind as well. You're right. It, it can happen, and I can think of a case of someone with dizziness who was sent to me, assumed to be a psychological or psychiatric presentation, and it, something about it just didn't sit right. I remember following this bloke uh, as he left the outpatient clinic at a discreet distance, just to see what happened. I don't know. There was something in my mind that that I thought I was sure. That this couldn't be explained by psychological reasons, and and he really even when he thought he was being unobserved, it was still pretty striking. And I sent him back to the ENT team, and it turned out that he did have a zebra. So it does happen, and I think the only answer to that is you need to know what you're doing. I don't make assumptions, but my concern about the way medicine is practiced, to a large extent, is that we tend to favour, as a profession, simple medical explanations in favour of complex psychological ones. Uh, and and I think it does send us hunting for zebras far too frequently.
1: It just reminds us of our own fallibility and our own limitations, because we often don't get it right in medicine. and. Sometimes it takes some years before the penny drops that this is a zebra and by the way those hoof bits really were very getting louder and louder until finally somebody says that's a case of something that you've read about in the medical textbooks and never have seen and here it is. The key thing I guess is that you walking with the patient on that journey and that they don't feel that somehow by virtue of your involvement that they have been dismissed out of the system.
2: I think that's right some sometimes when when a patient has symptoms and no one can find an explanation sometimes you do need to have a certain pragmatism about how you are going to manage it and and I I think doctors generally speaking are prone to the obsessional a little bit they're quite careful fastidious check things don't like to miss stuff and fairly careful by nature so I i I mean, my, my experience is that if you look at the studies of how likely it is that you'll miss a diagnosis, exactly the scenario you're talking about, I think if, if you look at people going to the neurologist with a neurological diagnosis and the neurologist sends them to, let's say, someone like me, it tends to be the case that in a, somewhere between about 1% and 4% of cases, retrospectively would have been explained by neurological illness. I think those studies are a few years old now but it's not to say that it never happens it's just pretty uncommon and as long as they're being sort of kept on to follow-up then I, I don't think you're likely to do too much harm.
1: I guess the point you're making and I'm kind of hinting at is that you really have to be among the best diagnosticians before you step into that realm of saying to a patient, I cannot possibly explain this and we'll have to work together to sort it out. Because, as you say, you need to know what you're doing. And they say that only the best should enter primary care or psychiatry because they're the ones who are going to be left with making the call. Is this something that needs a particular route to making a diagnosis or is this somebody we're going to have to support through what is a very difficult situation where the body the mind is behaving in a way that's unhelpful to the functioning of the body i want to come to your book head first talk about that a little bit what was the idea behind the book and how is it going so far
0: The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health.
2: The idea behind the book, I mean, we talked a lot about one sort of one area of how psychiatry in a general hospital interacts. You know, are these symptoms psychological? Are they physical? There's a lot to say about why these things happen the way they do. But more broadly, I was getting drawn into lots of different areas in the hospital where you would never think that a psychiatrist has any business. So for example, there was a a bariatric surgery clinic, and I was asked to make assessments of people who wanted weight loss surgery. And you would see the whole range of what you might call emotional hunger and life stories that had led to people behaving in the way that they did and the effects on their lives. In 2006, in the United Kingdom, you could give your kidney altruistically, not to a family member, but to the hospital, to whoever the hospital thought would benefit most from it. And of course, these patients were, so to speak, felt to have a case to answer to a psychiatrist as a first step, more or less, to why they would want to do something as radically altruistic as that. So again, that became an, a whole area. There was end-of-life issues and how that's dealt with in general hospitals, because I think to some extent, death is seen as a medical failure that people want to dissociate themselves from. And that, that became, to a smaller extent, an area. The effect of mental illness on a population of medically unwell patients so for example people who've had a stroke or a heart attack their outcomes are far worse if they've got depression they don't and yet people really I mean ask a stroke physician how often do you look for and actively treat depression how comfortable and confident do you feel in this area Compared with the time, money, expense, and effort that goes into all the more direct medical interventions, and he said practically none. You know, we just, and yet the outcomes are really striking. The advice that you give a patient after a heart attack, all of these, all of these things. In other words, I came to the view that, you know, there was one of me in a large general hospital, but I came to the view that psychiatry is inescapably linked with pretty well all the medical specialties and that's you know with the surgeons and capacity assessments so throughout the general hospital i i felt that that there was a job to do and that's really what sort of drove me to write the book which is again i come back at this a few times about our culture about how is it that we've got into a situation where we intuitively believe that medicine is one thing. And I think the correct practice of it is something a little bit different. And I would say it's as much about sort of what doctors believe as much as what patients believe. And I think that as medicine has got more fragmented, as people have got more specialized into particular areas, it's been far harder to think outside your area. So you have patients being passed around from one super specialty to the next, dizziness being a good example. So you'll have a patient who feels dizzy and they go from ENT to some autonomic specialist to a neurologist to a gastroenterologist for arcane reasons that I can't even guess at to all sorts of areas in the hospital before coming to me diagnosing an anxiety disorder, which is probably one of the commonest causes of dizziness, and I'm sure each individual clinician probably thought it was, but doesn't feel entirely unable to say that because they've spent the last X number of years in a very circumscribed and narrow area. So the, it's a very sort of long-winded answer to saying why the book, because I, it was something, a message that I wanted people to hear. I mean, it's a lot more fun than it sounds, by the way, this book. But, <laughs> it's, it's, but anyway, that, that, was what, um, that was what led me to it.
0: The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare.
1: I think what you're speaking to is what we've recognized over a number of years, and that is the super specialization within medicine. That we spend our time doing medicine that relates to one tiny part of the brain or one set of muscles in the shoulder or something else and we cannot see outside of that to see that we really are missing the commonest things that affect our patients because we have never looked up beyond the organ or the tissue that we were supposed to be focusing on is it getting worse
2: i mean i i think it is and i i mean i i watched medical documentaries from time to time and the medical documentaries are interesting because there's someone super specialized. It's an operation that's done three times a year in some specialist center. And there's close-up pictures of a sort of fragile web on someone's brain and a microscope. And all well, those twirling strands of DNA illustrating the marvelous sort of intervention that's happening in another medical clinic. And I'm thinking this isn't the real world. This is patients are presenting with common problems for which the solution is often or barely ever those things. It's interesting. If you go back to the ancient world, a doctor that specialised in the particular part of the body was just seen as a bit of a quack. You know, a doctor's job back then was to look after the whole body, the whole patient, which is, of course, the four humours thing. And keeping the body in alignment and all of those things. And we've moved away so so there's very few people apart from general practitioners. But but I think in hospital medicine we used to have the general physician when I was training. And I could think of one or two and they were always sort of magnificent in their sort of dark blue pinstripe suits and they're absolute certainty about every single area of the body. <laughs> they're sort of magisterial Sort of sweep through the ward <laughs> with uh, with with a whole sort of entourage in their wake, and you just don't see them anymore. Gone with them is a loss of wisdom, and I think that's something I sort of come back to in my own mind as well. Which sometimes the ability to take a view, to know, to be able to see the whole body and and not the individual organ is is sometimes a good good place to be.
1: We must have trained in the same place because I remember seeing the same guy walking around in his pin- <laughs> pinstripe suit he was pretty close to retirement even when I was training. So something, something has right. happened since then. Um, there's another thing that has happened, and that's particularly in the GP world that I can speak to, and maybe this is also being reflected in your world, that we know less and less about our patients because society has become so much more mobile. People are now walking into clinics and hospitals, have never lived in the area and have lost all of that history. You don't know anything about their families or where they work or the environments in which they work. And you're left to guess. And often what the, the only thing that you really know for certain is the results of their CT scan.
2: Well, I think that's a really interesting question, isn't it? Which is, what is healthcare becoming? And it's a little bit sort of a commodification if you like. It's a bit like sort of, I imagine it'll be like ordering an Uber or something, which you that the next available sort of clinic is the one that you end up consulting with because it's quick and convenient. But as you say, without that background, without the understanding of, of all of the things that have happened in your life, it can be very difficult to to get the context. And context is everything. In an illness not not just because it might tell you what illness is it more likely to be but why the potential effects are so uh, so sort of devastating for a particular patient so we do lose something i think that medicine is always about people about how you interact with them and understand them and once we lose that once it becomes technocratic i do think we we lose a great deal in medicine and it's. I suppose, I suppose a little bit of, of a worry for me.
1: Medicine has become increasingly a business, reflecting what's happening in the US, now happening in the U- UK, and certainly has happened in Australia. You can walk down any corner street here, a corner of any street, and find a specialist clinic stocked full of various consultants in, who normally would have resided in a hospital setting, now doing very lucrative business where they are, and the public beginning to think that this is the way that medicine works, that this is how, how you get the answers to the difficult questions. And, and therefore, the complex diagnosis becomes something that is an anachronism because they think, well, that can't be because they've got all those whiz-bang machines next door that's going to give me the diagnosis.
2: I think if you look at a, a symptom like pain, you when I was at medical school, it was taught pretty much like Descartes understood it in the 1600s. You know, if you bang your head on a plate glass window because you've not seen it as you're walking outside, you get pain. The pain fibres go into your brain. Your brain sends a signal and it's acute pain. But pain that goes on, suppose I bang my head on a plate glass window or you know, stub my toe, whatever, and and three months later, I'm still complaining of pain. What is that then? And we see that kind of scenario not uncommonly. Well, then it can't just be this acute pain response. Then it comes down to a number of other things like your beliefs about what you think is causing your pain now, whether you think you've done serious damage to your body. It can be about your mood. Depression, anxiety makes pain worse. It can be about symptom focusing, about how much time you spend thinking about it and attending to the pain. You know, there's some pretty good evidence, I think, that childhood adversities predispose people to chronic pain conditions. In other words, you take a fairly straightforward symptom, like I've had pain in my left arm for three months. Whatever, if you go to into someone that doesn't know the background or anything like that you can end up having lots of tests investigations and yes sure test a, test it once or twice i've got no problem with people being professionally investigated by the way but what you often see is it being treated more and more with painkillers and then escalating doses of painkillers and then sometimes opiate painkillers new thinking but that's not that's slightly missing the point and This is what I come back to these sort of more complex psychological explanations as opposed to the simplistic medical ones. You can see pain as a simplistic sort of reflex arc almost of a stimulus going from, let's say, your skin into your brain, producing pain, for which painkillers is the solution. Or you can say that this is actually a complicated mixture of your beliefs about your pain what it represents, how much you might be able to control it, what your mood is, all these other factors that just don't get considered. And and I think you can end up doing a lot of harm if you're, again, not thinking about it and you don't have that background. So I, 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 I agree with you. I, I think there is a danger in, in the simplification of medicine.
1: Alistair Santos, there's a great deal of wisdom in what you shared with us today. You've talked about the difference between a technician and a healer, and that's what medicine should be. We clearly trained with the same guy in the pinstripe suit, and he clearly taught us well. Thank you so much.
2: Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to uh, to talk to you today.
0: The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.